from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. I'll be reading from 1 Peter 2, verses 18 to 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what, credit is, for what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of God. Emmanuel, I'm glad to see you. I pray that your weeks were full of God's grace in you, and I hope you have many, many stories to share about that. Uh, I know I've said it the last couple of weeks, and I'll say it again, even though the event is actually over. Um, if you weren't able to get over to Samford on Thursday night to hear Dr. Esau McCauley speak about African-American biblical interpretation and why that matters to us, um, I encourage you, I know Tim's checking into it right now, I'm pretty sure they recorded it, I encourage you to go back and listen. Um, Dr. McCauley is a professor at Wheaton College in Chicago, uh, just, it was, it was fantastic. Um, I, I, many of you were there, so it was good to see you. Um, but it was encouraging and enlightening and convicting and everything across the board. Um, so I highly encourage you guys, if you have a chance, to go back and listen to it. I'm sure you can find it, Davis Lectures. I'll get with Tim and we'll get you something, maybe tomorrow, a link. You can go and check that out. So we're continuing our trek through uh, First Peter this morning, obviously. Um, last week we uh, had Dustin Ratcliffe from Iron City come over and preach for us, and it was, it was awesome, and he did a great job unpacking for us chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. If you missed that, I hope you go back and listen to it. Uh, this is going to be a full week of podcasting for some, um, but go back and listen to that. Uh, but we're going to continue this week to unpack this section in First Peter where he is discussing our relationship with those outside of the body of Christ. Now, thus far from chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to chapter 2, verse 10, Peter's been primarily talking about our relationships with individuals within the body of Christ. How do we relate to one another? But now, in 2.11, which started last week, he shifts his conversation to talking about relationships outside of the body of Christ. And verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2 uh, are kind of the, the thesis for the, really all the way until chapter 4, verse 11, for what Peter's going to be talking about. And this isn't our text for this morning, but I want us to read it again. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. So if you've got a Bible, follow along with me. 
Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's got these these echoes, if you're familiar with the Gospels, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, you know, let your light shine before men and they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's kind of got the same tone and center here. So Peter is explaining to us how to demonstrate those good deeds so that ones who are currently not following Christ may see our good deeds and potentially bring him glory, follow him. And last week we talked about our relationship to the government, which was great. Dustin did a great job with that text. And this week, although Peter begins his conversation about servants and masters, which we'll talk about briefly, it's really a conversation in a broader sphere, talking about how we are to respond when we suffer unjustly. How do we find ourselves, how do we respond to powers that be that seek to oppress us as believers in this world for doing good in this world. So we're going to unpack that together, but I do want to pray for us um, and ask the Spirit of God to help us see and believe this text this morning. So let's pray together. Father, we do believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe the Holy Spirit still works and moves among us to point our eyes towards the glory of your Son, Jesus. We ask you this morning as we look at this text that You do that, that the Spirit of God that comes from you and comes from Christ would illuminate our hearts and our minds and our eyes, not only to see the truth in the text, but to believe it, to live it. May we honor you with our listening. May we honor you with our living. May you change us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Pastor Eugene Peterson, uh, who's a hero of mine. He says this, it's a little lengthy, the quote is, so it's going to be on the screen for you. Just follow along. He says, we choose. We follow the dragon and his beasts along their parade route, conspicuous with the worship of splendid images, elaborated in mysterious symbols, fond of statistics, taking on whatever role is necessary to make a good show and get the applause of the crowds in order to get access to power, become self-important. Or we follow the lamb along a farmyard route, worshiping the invisible, listening to the foolishness of preaching, practicing a holy life that involves heroically difficult acts that no one will ever notice, in order to become simply our eternal selves in an eternal city. It's the difference politically between wanting to use the people around us to become powerful, or if unskilled, getting used by them, and entering into covenants with the people around us so that the power of salvation extends into every part of the neighborhood, the society, and the world that God loves. Power and weakness, the way of the dragon and the way of the lamb. You know, power is an alluring thing. Power is something commonly sought, something commonly desired, yet rarely satisfying, and rarely used in self-giving ways. You know, maybe a variety of images pop into your mind when you think about power. Most of them, I would venture to say, are probably negative. We think about dictators ruling with iron fists. We think about what's happening in Russia and Ukraine right now. Maybe you think about those in positions of leadership, maybe even in the church, using their power to belittle or tear down or oppress or abuse those in lesser positions. And maybe you think about Frodo Baggins and this sought-after, corrupting, burdensome ring of power that he's seeking to destroy and 
Mount Doom, while all along the way he sees men become less than human in their desire to possess that power. You know, power is often seen as like an out there problem, but in reality, power is an in here problem for each one of us. You know, if you're like me, maybe you see those people in positions abusing their power and you think to yourself, now if I were in that position, I wouldn't do X, Y, and Z. And by God's grace, I pray that would be true. You know, I hope that if you ever are sitting in seats of power wherever you work or live or reside, that you wouldn't use your power in harmful ways. But I think if there's anything we know from the scriptures and stories like King Saul failing to live up to the responsibilities of King or King David, a righteous king, up until the point where he sees a woman bathing on a roof and abuses his power to demand she come into his chambers and sleep with him, or even James and John, the disciples of Christ, who see Jesus working these supernatural works of power, and they want him to use those works to call down fire from heaven to consume a Samaritan village. And if there's anything we see in the scriptures, it's that power can corrupt and distort even the most well-intentioned people. We all know the Lord acting quote, you know, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That seems to ring true. Oftentimes, live in a world obsessed with power. And this obsession has infiltrated the church. And when we see this every four years, in particular when presidents are elected, so much of the church's hope tends to be tied to who sits in office, to who sits in these seats of power, who holds the power of this land. And fear is stoked in the hearts of believers when we think about if our candidate's not picked, then it's the end of America. It's the end of freedom. It's the end of Christianity. It's the end of X, Y, and Z. Our hope is actually placed in the way of the dragon. The quest for power that corrupted Satan and caused him to be banished from heaven has become in many ways the way of the church. But this is not the way of the Lamb. The way of the lamb is the way of weakness. In fact, I want to put before you today, kind of the main thrust of the sermon, that the way of Christ is patient endurance and weakness to demonstrate otherworldly confidence in God. That the way of Christ is patient endurance and weakness to demonstrate otherworldly confidence in God. That the way of Christ is the way of the cross. And it's in shouldering the load of the cross that one finds ultimate power. You know, weakness is what binds together 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 7. Peter is addressing those subject to the state, servants in relation to unbelieving masters, and wives in relation to unbelieving husbands. Citizens under Roman rule, slaves, and women. Three of the weakest positions in the ancient Roman world. And he isn't calling them to throw off their positions of weakness and pursue seats of power. But rather, he's calling them to be faithful witnesses to Christ, even in their positions of weakness. But let's start. I want to start unpacking this text with us. I want to show you that. Verses 18 to 25. Read with me again verses 18 to 20. 
Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you are good, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, Peter's addressing here household slaves, what the word means here, servant, household slaves in the ancient Roman world, specifically household slaves working for non-Christian masters. And it's important to note here at the outset just some similarities and differences between ancient Roman slavery and what we think of as Americans as chattel slavery back in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s here in America. The conditions of slaves in ancient Rome, they varied greatly. You know, there were varieties of reasons men and women ended up in slavery in Rome. They could, they could have been born children of slaves. They could be prisoners of war. You know, maybe they fell into debt, desired to pay their debts off through servitude. But it was possible for slaves in ancient Rome to buy their own freedom. And it's interesting, about one-fourth of the Roman world, the known Roman world in the first century, one-fourth were known to be slaves. A fourth. Now, obviously, that's somewhat different than slavery here in America. Now, slavery in America was most often characterized by cruelty and depression. There was no chance for a slave in America to buy his or her own freedom. That opportunity just did not exist. Slavery in America was rooted in one's skin pigmentation, what they looked like, where slavery in Rome was not. You know, slaves were slaves not because of what they looked like in Rome, but because of life situations and circumstances. Whereas here in America, what you look like determined your lot in life. But neither option's good, right? Whether it be slavery in Rome or slavery in America, slavery is not a good thing. Particularly if your master is cruel and unjust, which is the context Peter's speaking into here. Now, Peter addresses household slaves who are victims of unjust suffering. And Peter's specifically telling these slaves here, verse 18, to be subject, submissive, to honor even their masters. Whether their masters are kind or cruel, Peter's calling on people here in the midst of unjust suffering to honor their masters. This verse ties into verse 13, which we looked at last week. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, in first century Roman world, one of the institutions that, was, that existed was that between slave and master. Now, this opens up a variety of questions, right? I mean, even when we consider modern forms of slavery, particularly slavery in, in the American context, there are Tons of questions that we can't even begin to answer here in 35, 40 minutes on a Sunday morning. My hope is for some of these conversations to be discussed in your gospel communities this week. Some of these questions to be talked about and answered. Maybe you and I can grab lunch at some time, maybe not this week, coffee at some point this week and talk about some of these things. But the tempting thing to do in this moment for me, the tempting thing for you to want to do as listeners is to make this sermon solely about slaves and masters. Which one day, hopefully, 
we can talk about slaves and masters in particular in America and in the Roman context. But if we're to be faithful to the text of 1 Peter and keep this verse in relationship with those around it, we need to let verse 18 sit in the context of verses 18 through 25. This is a sermon about unjust suffering. And slaves and masters are the paradigm for how we approach unjust suffering. And when we do that, when we do that, we see that Peter is broadening his scope here to include all believers who are victims of unjust suffering in this world. How are we to live, Christians? How are we to live when we find ourselves in positions of oppression, ridicule, and contempt at the hands of those in power over us? Do we seek to assume those roles of power, thinking that if we were in those positions, we would do things differently? Or is there another way? Regardless of whatever whatever happens in this life, is there another way that we are to live? Now, sitting in seats of influence and power is not a bad thing in and of itself. But Peter's less concerned about the acquisition of powerful positions And he's more concerned about faithful living in weak ones. And the first thing he says here when we see verses 18 through 20, first point for you, is that patient endurance during unjust suffering is evidence of God's grace in us. That patient endurance during unjust suffering is evidence of God's grace in us. Now let me just clarify what I'm not saying I think that's good. What I don't think Peter is saying here. This does not mean that we are to seek out unjust suffering. You know, there were men and women in the early church that sought out martyrdom. They sought it out on purpose because they thought this was the apex of demonstrating obedience to Christ. And so they purposely went to find ways they could die for their faith. So instead of living for Christ and his strength and power, the, the intention, uh, they intentionally sought out death in, Christ, uh, death in Christ to show they would be faithful to the end. I misspelled everything on my slide right here. That's why I stumbled over that. <laughs> we don't seek to put ourselves in situations where we're going to experience unjust suffering. Rather, unjust suffering is just a way of the world, especially for believers. And I'm also not saying that if you're currently experiencing unjust suffering, that you need to stay in that situation. That you shouldn't seek out other alternatives to suffer less for doing good. I'm not going to be one of those preachers who says that slaves who escaped their cruel masters to the north were wrong. I don't think they were. I'm not going to tell you that wives should stay in abusive relationships if they try to leave, they're wrong. I don't think they are. I don't believe that God desires for oppressed people under unjust suffering to live in situations of oppression when there are other alternatives out there. More on that in a second. So what is Peter saying? What's he saying? What is he talking about? What kind of suffering is he talking about? Well, there's a specific type of suffering Peter's discussing here, and we've talked about this already, but it's unjust suffering for doing good. For doing good. 
It's right there in verse 20. When you do good and suffer for it. So when you're seeking to honor God by doing good and you receive suffering as a result, unjust suffering, that's what Peter's talking about. Now, as a side note, by the way, the fact that Peter is addressing and calling something unjust towards slaves and masters, which was just, it was accepted that masters could treat their slaves however they wanted to. They were property of theirs. The fact that Peter's calling it unjust is actually giving value and dignity to the slave. Right? Because they were considered property in Rome and in our context. So to call something unjust that was widely accepted is Peter already here going, hey, that is a person. It's a human being with value and dignity. Treat them with respect. So this is suffering for doing good. It's not suffering for being a jerk. Like I get so tired sometimes when I hear people talk about Christians, talk about being persecuted in the workplace for their faith, when in reality that man or woman is just simply an inconsiderate jerk. They're not suffering for doing good. They're suffering for being a nuisance and annoying. But this is suffering for truly seeking to love our neighbors well for seeking the welfare of the city and getting pushback as a result. Our minds are fixed on God's glory and we are seeking to do, to do good, yet what we receive is unjust treatment as a result. So let me give you from this section just three, three points to consider, three wisdom points to consider if you currently or will be facing unjust suffering. First, and please hear me when I say this. I don't want my words to be misconstrued. If they are, I'll just point you back to the podcast. Uh, Listen, listen. Peter's primary concern here in this text, his primary concern is not the transformation of social structures, but the transformation of God's people. I'll say it again. His primary concern in this text is not the transformation of social structures, but the transformation of God's people. No New Testament writer ever advocated an all-out attack on the social structures in Rome. I think there are a variety of reasons for this, but I think primarily, I think it's because I don't think any of the writers held out much hope that the world was going to change around them. And let me tell you why, why I believe that. Judaism was already weak in the Roman world. Then you have this break-off set of Judaism that are calling themselves the way, or Christians, or Christ followers, following this guy that was just nailed to a tree, a criminal's death. The weakest of the weak is what that symbolized in the Roman world. Not only that, but the primary followers of this crucified man are poor and weak, men and women, with no education, meeting in homes and cover of darkness, because on one side they have Romans trying to snuff them out, on the other side they have Jews trying to snuff them out. There was no social media, there was no way you could make your voice known, there was no access granted to anyone to write letters to the government pleading for change, that just did not exist. So lest we impose modern readings back onto this text and think that the early church had way more power than they actually possessed. Let's sit with the facts for just a second. Now, Christianity wouldn't even be widely accepted for another 350 years under Constantine, 
So for 350 years, men ruled Rome that wanted to kill every person in that society that followed Jesus. So it's not too far-fetched to believe that most Christ followers in the first century didn't have too high hopes for reworking the social institutions of their day. But God was creating a colony, a holy nation, in the middle of this pagan, oppressive society that would be different, that would live in relation to one another in different ways. A colony that would strip away any oppressive structures and begin to view one another with dignity and with value and with respect, regardless of whatever socioeconomic background you had. Nowhere in the scriptures is the church called to change the world. Nowhere. We're not called to change the world. But all throughout the scriptures, the church is called to be changed in the world. To be an outpost of hope, a society, a people where the desires of justice and reconciliation and mercy and grace and kindness and unity can be realized in their fullness. Should the church be voices and advocates for change in our culture and society? Absolutely yes. Yes. I mean, right now we're talking about big picture stuff, all right? We're looking 30,000 foot view at these things. I hope some of you in your GCs can flesh some of this out as to what that looks like for you. But yes, we should seek to take the gospel into all spheres in this world, in this community, in this country. But should that change be realized already among the redeemed people of God? a royal priesthood, and a holy nation? Should we be experiencing that right now here at Emmanuel Church? Absolutely, yes. We should. May we be a colony of grace here, Emmanuel Church, a colony of reconciliation, a respite of realized transformation among a people set apart for God's purposes. Now listen, we do not want to be a church, to quote Dr. McCauley from the other night, we don't want to be a church that divides body and soul. We are whole persons, body and soul together. You know, he mentioned the other night that when Christian slave owners would try to justify keeping slaves, what they would say is, well, I'll minister to their soul, I can do whatever I want with their bodies. That is evil. That's not biblical. We minister to whole persons because we are whole persons body and soul together. So will we feed physical bodies? Yes, we will. Will we feed spiritual souls? Yes, we will. Because we want to minister to the whole person. Second point of wisdom. Seek guidance and direction from God's people. This is less in the text, and it's more just a a point of wisdom. I think that we live in a hyper-individualized society. I think we how, at least I do, always have a tendency to fight against the tendency to, to, to ask other people before I make big, sometimes confusing decisions. But we have an entire group of people here filled with the Holy Spirit of God to help us navigate hard situations, particularly situations where we are in thro- the throes of unjust suffering. You know, if you're in a career right now and your employer is treating you poorly because you are a believer 
and seeking to do good, or you live in a neighborhood right now where your neighbors are treating you poorly because you're a believer and you're seeking to do good in the neighborhood, don't feel the burden and the pressure to have to figure out what to do by yourself. Ask somebody. Seek counsel. Seek the wisdom of others in this body. Approach the body of Christ with these questions and let us navigate this road together. Because we want to suffer together with you. Which leads to my last point here on wisdom when it comes to unjust suffering. Don't always look for that which is most comfortable. Don't always look for that which is most comfortable. Are there usually other opportunities in our day and age for someone to take advantage of other options to alleviate suffering by unjust means? Yeah, oftentimes there are. Are you free to remove yourself from unjust suffering? Yeah, oftentimes you are. Should you do it right this minute or should you stay in that difficult situation for a time? I don't know. I don't know. Each situation is different. I think the tendency for us is to oftentimes remove ourselves too quickly from periods of suffering when things get difficult and hard and not let the Lord teach us what it looks like to endure in suffering. I do think it's possible that in some situations, not all, some situations where you're suffering unjustly that the Lord may be calling you to stay a little longer, to live in that house a little longer, to stay in that job a little longer. This goes back to the second point, asking for wisdom. Let's help each other together navigate these things. For if we're always removing ourselves from suffering, unjust suffering, then the world's not going to see our good deeds. They're not, because we're gone. So let's pause. Let's pause a little longer before making position changes rather than ask the Lord, is this where you need me to be for now? So, after discussing unjust suffering here between servants and masters, Peter then transitions in verse 21. So let's read verses 21 to 25 here. Turns our attention to Christ. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Second major point here. The patient endurance of Christ in unjust suffering is our atonement and example. It's our atonement and our example. Obviously, there are aspects of Christ's suffering and death we cannot repeat. You know, we can't die for the sins of God's people. It's been done. We can't bear the weight of sin in our bodies so that God's people can live lives of righteousness that's been done. We cannot live sinless lives. We've already disqualified ourselves. We can't live sinless lives 
to qualify ourselves to die a substitutionary death in the place of other sinners. Can't do that. It's already been done. None of these things can or ever will be repeated. Christ has done them all, and he will never do them again. But at the same time, Peter is giving us Christ's suffering and death as an example of the apex of unjust suffering. There's never been and never will be anyone more innocent of wrongdoing than Jesus Christ. He was sinless. Yet he suffered the death of a guilty criminal on our behalf for our sins, verse 24. There will never be suffering that was any more unjust than his. And Peter roots this example, and as he does all throughout the letter thus far, and will continue to do in the Old Testament. Verses 22 to 25 are basically a paraphrase of Isaiah chapter 53. Suffering servant text, as it's called in the Old Testament. This picture of the ultimate suffering servant, Jesus, leaving an example for other smaller suffering servants of God, us, to follow. And the first piece of example Jesus left us with was he did not seek retaliation. Jesus did not seek retaliation. He didn't seek to get even. He didn't seek revenge. I mean, verse 22, there's so many examples. Verse 22, no deceit was found in his mouth. He didn't use his tongue to lie about his situation to get him out of suffering circumstances. In fact, he rarely spoke at all. Read the gospel accounts. He barely said anything as accusations, false accusations are heaped upon him. False accusations for doing good are heaped upon him over and over again, which is the kind of suffering Peter's talking about here. Jesus didn't revile or slander, verse 23, when he was being slandered by those who interacted with him during his trial, even hanging on the cross. If you say you're the son of God, come down from there slandered on the cross, hanging there, dying, people walking by, jeering at him. Jesus did not do that. Jesus had complete control of his tongue. Complete control, and he didn't use it to deride anything happening to him in that moment. He didn't tear down his accusers, but instead he used his mouth to pray for them, even as he bled out on that tree. He didn't threaten Verse 23, you just wait until my dad gets a hold of you. He didn't say anything of that sort as he was suffering unjustly. Instead, and this is our second point here, instead he entrusted his future to God. Jesus entrusted himself, his future, to God. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See, Jesus knew who his father was. Jesus knew his father's heart. He knew his disposition, for he came to earth from the presence of his father to demonstrate the father to each of us. And he knew two things about his father that brought him great comfort in the middle of unjust suffering. First, he knew that his father loves justice. That God loves justice. The God of the Bible is a God who loves making things right. The God of the Bible who promises to justify the innocent and punish the wrongdoer. That's who we worship and that's who we serve. He's a God who loves to see justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, Amos 5.24. 
Or Psalm 37, 28 and 29, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. Jesus entrusted his future vindication and justification to the one with the power to reverse roles. The one who can take the weak, suffering unjustly in the world and make them strong as victors. Jesus didn't seek power on the cross. He embraced weakness and suffering at the hands of evil men, knowing that one day his father would make things right because his father loves justice. And then second, and this is how we're going to end, second, Jesus not only entrusted himself to his father who loves justice, but he also entrusted himself to his father who loves his people. Loves his people. Verse 25, the language here of shepherd and overseer communicates so many things. I wish we had a whole sermon to devote to this. But shepherds were known for the intimacy they had with their sheep. They were known as providers and caretakers and defenders. They were gentle and kind, guiding the sheep to places of pasture where they could lay down and rest in safety and plenty. Our God is our shepherd. As we find ourselves in this life possibly suffering unjustly, the example of Christ is to give ourselves and our future, even when we don't understand or see what's going on, to entrust ourselves to the care of our shepherd, who will always defend us, who will always guide us, who will always lead us to quiet waters and still pastures. You know, my preaching professor in seminary during my master's program was Dr. Robert Smith, Jr., Maybe you know him. Um, became a, more than a professor. I mean, he was a mentor of mine. He was a friend. He was a father figure in many regards. He's truly a man that embodies what it means to be a pastor. Not a preacher, although he can do that very well, but a pastor. And he's been truly successful in ministry, truly. He's 73 years old, and he's still going strong. But even despite his great success in ministry... Dr. Smith has tasted the sting of unjust suffering. Not only has he lived as a black man in America, particularly through the civil rights era and beyond, but 2010 in particular, during my first year at Beeson, his 34-year-old son was shot and killed trying to stop a robbery at a restaurant. He's trying to do good, right? Suffering unjustly. No money was even taken. During the trial, I remember Dr. Smith, he went up to the courtroom and he forgave his son's murderer. Forgave him. I had the privilege to sit under his teaching again during my doctoral program. And about a year ago, as I was sitting with him and my cohort, he was sharing these things with, with our, my classmates and myself. And someone asked him how throughout his life he has preached through pain. And this is what he said, and I'll never forget it. He said, if a preacher desires power in the pulpit, he can expect pain. And he paused for a moment, and he quoted what Peter quotes here. He says, Isaiah 53, 6, by his wounds we are healed. Wounds heal wounds. That wounds heal wounds. 
Dr. Smith had entrusted himself to a God who knows pain. A God who watched his son suffer unjustly. A God who understands the power of weakness, particularly the power of wounds. And he can trust this God who loves justice and loves his people. When we find ourselves in places of unjust suffering, church, entrust yourself to this God. This is who we worship. This is who we serve. This is who we follow. This is who we are giving ourselves to. When we follow the way of the Lamb, the way of weakness, entrusting ourselves to God for our strength, we are demonstrating to the world that our confidence is not in worldly power. It's not in the power of this broken world that never delivers. It's not there, but our confidence is in the power of God. That He will vindicate us. That justice delayed is not justice discarded. That it's coming for those that have suffered unjustly at the hands of wicked men. And we trust our God, our shepherd, to deliver it in his time. Let's pray together. Father, you are righteous. And you are just. You are fair. You are holy. You're not one whose arm is twisted, who takes bribes. And I deserve your justice for my sin, for my offenses against you. I deserved the punishment from your hand. But Christ came and suffered unjustly for my sin. Your justice fell upon Christ for my sin. Although I put Christ on the cross, you have now adopted me. You've now pulled me into your pasture, into your flock, and you lead me gently like a shepherd. Because of our good shepherd, Jesus. You love us so much. You've been so gracious to us. we never fail to extend that love and grace to one another in this body. May this truly be a church for those suffering unjustly. May it truly be a carved out place in this city where justice is seen and love is bestowed and grace is given and mercy is shown even if nothing out there demonstrates, demonstrates that, may it be demonstrated in here, among us. For you have showed all those things to us. You saved us, oh God. You've saved us. May we entrust ourselves to your sovereignty. 
You truly are sovereign over us, oh God. You truly are sovereign over us, and you are good to us. It's one thing to be sovereign. It's another thing to be sovereign and good. So we can trust you. We can trust your heart. Whatever situation we find ourselves in this morning, we can trust your heart, that you love us, that you're for us, and that you will get glory in us. Be honored in us, oh God. In Christ's name, amen.